Last month, Anna Parnell, the founder of the Ladies' Land League, was honoured with a plaque on O'Connell Street in Dublin. It was erected 110 years after she died in a drowning accident in Ilfracombe in Devon at the age of 59. To talk about her extraordinary life with me this evening are two guests from Belfast. I'm joined by feminist historian Dr Margaret Ward, who first wrote about Anna in her seminal work, Unmanageable Revolutionaries. And also with me here in Dublin is Lucy Keaveney, a retired teacher who's campaigned tirelessly for Anna to receive greater recognition for the important role that she played in Irish history. You're both very welcome indeed Thank to you, the Miles. History Show. Thank uh, you, Miles. Margaret, uh, in Belfast, could you talk to us first of all about Anna's early life and about how she and her siblings, principally obviously Charles Stuart Parnell and Fanny Parnell, became politicised? Well, the, the three of them are what uh, Roy Foster would call the political Parnells, the younger members of the family. The older ones weren't politically interested and, and were part of the, the upper classes and the kinds of land-owning classes. But what made them unusual was the fact that they had in their mother Delia an American who had a very wide family background so that, for example, one of their great aunts by marriage was a member of a suffrage group in America. So the younger Parnells, after their father died, there wasn't a lot of money, so they weren't schooled. The children, the girls weren't schooled. They were much more able to run free, to develop interests of their own, to read what they wanted. And Delia really didn't give them the same kind of discipline or aspirations to marriage, etc., that would have been expected by girls of their class. So they're very different from their older siblings and um, much more free-spirited. And at a very early age, Fanny Parnell becomes interested in Fenianism to the extent that she actually attends O'Donovan Ross's trial in 1867. So you can see they were very, very different from what a Protestant land-owning family would have been at that time in 19th century Ireland. Now, of course, the Land League is founded in 1879, seeking to help poor tenant farmers, enable them to own the land that they are working. And when the male leadership of the Land League was imprisoned in 1881, the Ladies' Land League, led by Anna Parnell, took over their work. And, and Margaret, Anna travelled far and wide throughout the country, carrying out the work of the Ladies' Land League and encouraging women around the country to form local branches with a lot of success. Yes, because it grows very rapidly. But I just go back very slightly. She's in America at the time of the formation of the Land League with Fanny and Delia. And they set up Ladies' Land League's branches in America, first of all, in New York and Boston and places. And Fanny travels around. And that is to raise money for the Land League in Ireland. And so Anna is watching those developments and she comes back to Ireland at the end of 1880 and the men know that they're going to be imprisoned and the league prescribed. And so they invite her to become the secretary of a women's organisation that they expect would only keep up a semblance 
of position. They didn't expect the woman to be able to do very much, but they reckoned without Anna Parnell, who said she a programme of a permanent resistance till the aims of the League was achieved was the only logical one. And so she sets out to encourage women to come forward and immediately starts travelling around the countryside. So by the beginning of 1882, there are over 100, 500 branches and a lot of them have between one and 200 members. And also in Glasgow, London, Liverpool and Manchester, she goes across and encourages branches to be formed amongst Irish communities in Britain. Lucy, you found out about Anna's life and and work at a lecture, I think. Tell me about how you actually found out about her and the effect that it had on you. Well, actually, I went to the Parnell School in Avondale, the summer school, in 2011. And I heard the story of Anna Parnell, just as Margaret has said it now, and how how she ended uh, her, her final end. I couldn't get over that I had gone through the educational system here, primary school, secondary school and college, had done history in college and I had not never heard of Anna Parnell or the Ladies' Land League. It had a profound effect on me. We knew that on that day it was dedicated to Anna because it was the centenary of her death. Loads of pictures of Charles Stewart around the hall. There wasn't one picture of Anna. So it had a deep effect in me and resolved that we would go and visit our grave when we got an opportunity, which we did in 2013. And the graveyard was in a shambles, the whole graveyard, but her particular grave. It took us three hours to find the grave. Now, I didn't stay the three hours. My husband has greater lasting power than I have. But when we found it, it was in a very bad state. The headstone was tilted back. The slightest gust of wind would have knocked it down. So we headed to the local flower place garden centre and got gravel and plants and a spade and we spent hours doing up the grave. We got little stones to prop up the headstone and we thought that was it then, that we had done our bit. We've gone, we went over every year since that and through different connections we made, we actually got the government to actually renovate the grave, which they did. And once they renovated it, then we felt that there really should be an official ceremony at the grave, which we had in 2018. The Irish ambassador to Great Britain, Mr Adrian O'Neill, laid a read on behalf of the Irish government. Helen Dunlop Malley laid a read on behalf of the Irish women. In all, there were four reads laid. You have plans, but we'll talk about those plans a little bit later. Uh, What you're essentially saying is that the neglect of Anna Parnell continues Continues, uh, almost almost to this day. Um, But one of the things that impressed you most when you began to look into the history, the story of Anna Parnell, was her sheer organisational skill and nous. Describe that to me. How good was she? She was absolutely brilliant. I mean, they had branches all over the country. They actually did the work that the men had planned to do, but never did. When people were being evicted, they have, before they actually took over, they had found out all the, the holdings of land that were rented, the size of the land, the names of the landlords, absentee landlords. And when they actually took over, they had a very good record 
a database, really, mm. of all the holdings around Ireland and the people in them. And when they heard about somebody being evicted, they would sit with them to prevent the evictions. And then if they failed, they would build little bohons for them. So they were absolutely, they held meetings around the country. Of course, the establishment didn't want those meetings and they broke them up. So what the women did, they decided they'd hold all the meetings at the same time so they wouldn't have the personnel. And they used to provide food for the men in prison so that the men wouldn't have to eat the prison food. So what they did was phenomenal. They were an extraordinary activists at a time, they were before their time actually. Indeed, and I know they weren't particularly popular with the Cardinal Archbishop, the Catholic Cardinal Archbishop of Dublin. The more more they were condemned from the altar, the more the women joined up. Mm. Um, Now, Margaret Anna wrote an account of her Land League experiences uh, in 1907 (sighs) called Tale of a Great Sham. Not that you would have had much success if you were looking for it between 1907 and 1986 because that's when it was finally published. Does she talk about her own strategy in the Ladies' Land League and how her strategy differed from that of her brothers? Oh, very much so. I mean, what she doesn't do is talk about personalities. She says personalities don't matter. What matters are events. And what she talks about is, first of all, a very merciless dissection of what the men were doing. I mean, at the time, their strategy was rent at the point of a bayonet, which meant that they would defy the landlord right up to the very end, and then the league would pay all the legal costs, and then people would pay the rent. It was a very expensive strategy, and the money was going to the landlord in the end. The the rent was being paid if people could pay it. What would happen later, of course, were the ones who couldn't pay any rent. But the rent of the point of a bayonet, she felt, was a strategy that led nowhere and it wasn't challenging landlordism. When the men went to jail, they then issued the no-rent manifesto, which she thought was an even more difficult strategy until she realised the men had, had no intention of actually enforcing it. And that, for her, was the sham that they would have these great pronouncements but hadn't ever thought about how they would make that a reality. So she said that they were determined that if this was going to be the strategy, that they would make it a reality. And and that's what they developed, what they called their Book of Kells, this very detailed annotation of the state of the country, the strength of landlord power, whether or not tenants could actually pay the rent. And of course, you also had the complication of a Land Act then being legislated for by Gladstone and the Liberals, which meant that those who had money could apply to the land courts and get rent alleviation. The problem was that the landless labourers and those of leaseholders weren't part of the Act. And so the Ladies' Land League, then it becomes very much, you can see the class fishers in Irish society, what they're really doing are supporting the poorest and the dispossessed in society and the better off for applying to the land courts. And they're the ones who are really the followers of the Irish Party and Charles Stuart Parnell, whereas the women more and more are 
sympathising with the dispossessed and those who are simply being turned out at the side of the road. They're the ones they build the land lead huts for and try and help them when it comes to evictions. And so there's a great wedge between what the men had wanted to achieve, which basically was to have a kind of a show of resistance, but it was really on a political stage between Parnell and the Liberal Party rather than actually challenging landlord power in Ireland. When you think that only 800 people owned the whole of the land in Ireland at this time, what the Ladies' Land League wanted was something very different and they wanted either peasant proprietorship or I think Anna Parnell actually wanted land nationalisation. She was a, a friend of Henry George, the great American agrarian reformer, who came over and wrote in the Irish World newspaper at the time and had a great admiration for what the women were doing. He said that they would have achieved the end of the Land League in a way that the, the men he didn't feel were capable of doing. And of course, Michael Davitt, a great admirer of Henry George, was also a great admirer of Anna Parnell. The land war then comes to an end in 1882, in effect, as a, as a result of a deal between Parnell and Gladstone called the, the Kilmainham Treaty. And Parnell does not appreciate his sister's activism when he comes out of jail. And you have this charge of extravagance, which is set against the Ladies' Land League, despite the fact that, uh, as Lucy has pointed out, a lot of the money that they spent was spent on feeding prisoners in Kilmainham and elsewhere. So what happens then when Parnell gets out of Kilmainham? I know. I mean, the charge of extravagance is such hypocrisy. I mean, £21,000 was spent on feeding the prisoners. Um, and when the women, I mean, there were women who were also jailed, they didn't have food sent into them because they weren't treated as political prisoners. And the women did collect money themselves, but they did spend about £70,000. It is an enormous amount. But a lot of that was on legal fees, on things, that, on a strategy that the landlord itself had implemented or had called to be implemented and, and it became an expensive strategy and the more and more people applied to land courts etc the more the Land League was paying legal costs for them so it was actually a strategy they were more successful than the men and their costs rose as a result of that and it wasn't because of extravagance it was because of their effectiveness and Parnell comes out and the first thing he says to David is the women have to be dissolved but in fact they don't want the women to be dissolved really they want them to be controlled by the men but they want the women to continue looking at the pleas that are coming in for help for charitable help and they want the women to make those decisions. And the women say that was always the worst part of our job. That isn't what we're there for. If we can't be politically active, we don't want to remain in existence. And there's this tussle between the women and the men for several months before the women eventually do dissolve. And it's announced that there'll be this new organisation, the National League, which will be, as they say, an open organisation in which the ladies will not take part. And in the midst of all of this, Fanny Parnell dies in August of 1882. But even that does not appear to bring brother and sister Anna Parnell and Charles Stuart Parnell together. 
No, and I think that at that stage, Anna suffers a really an emotional collapse. I mean, it's such a shock that her sister, who's only 33, who she was extremely close to, dies so suddenly of a heart attack. And Anna's overworked anyway. So she withdraws for a while, goes to recuperate. And there are various messages about her health and her recovery and health posted in the newspaper, but it does say very definitely that she won't be coming back. But that's the men writing that. They say that it'd be very doubtful whether she'll ever take up a position in public life again. They don't want her to do it. That's quite obvious. And so, in in a sense, she does withdraw from the final dissolution of the Ladies' Land League, which is taken over by other members of her executive she goes then to the southwest of England and she lives by a different name, Cerisa Palmer. Is that a denial of the name Parnell? Well, she goes to an artist colony in Cornwall, first of all, because she was a talented painter and had been to art college. And then she goes to Devon. When you know, we, we think about it, Catherine O'Shea once writes to Parnell when he's in jail that the an effigy of his sister had been burnt on Guy Fawkes night outside her house. So the name Parnell was not an, a usual name. I can see why she possibly wouldn't have wanted people to have known who she was related to and all of the things that had happened in the past, that she wanted a quiet life. So although she led a quiet life, she wasn't as reclusive as, as we sometimes think. She kept on a great correspondence, for example, with Helen Taylor, who was the stepdaughter of John Stuart Mill. And Helen Taylor had been the head of the Political Prisoners Aid Society, came over to Ireland several times during this time. And she supports Helen Taylor when in 1885 she tries to stand as a radical candidate in the English elections, challenging women's exclusion from Parliament. And then later on, when Maud Gon sets up an Enina Heron, she's again sending telegrams to them. So she's still very much engaged, but she tends to not come back to Ireland that often. But she does come back. She comes back and speaks for Sinn Féin when they stand in their first by-election She comes back in 1911 and gives a three-hour lecture on the Ladies' Land League to a meeting of Anini Neheran and the Franchise League. So she never leaves Ireland mentally, but yes, she doesn't have that name when she's in England. Mm. Lucy, you have managed to achieve some measure of recognition for Anna Parnell with a blue plaque in O'Connell Street, but you, you want more. Let's go back to Ilfracombe and let's go back to that grave. You want her body, her remains to be repatriated, don't you? I would like that to happen now for lots of reasons. Number one, the Parnell Society visited that grave in 2002 and they placed a plaque on it with a quote from Anna's writings. But between 2002 and 2013, it had disintegrated and was in a bad state when we found it. The state has now taken it over. Are we going to wait another... Is it going to disintegrate again? We can't let that happen. Can I read a quote for you? Mm. It's from Andrew Kettle, who was one of the founders of the Irish Land League. He described Anna as, quote, having a better knowledge of the social and political forces in Ireland than any person, man or woman, I have ever met. 
she would have worked the Land League revolution to a much better conclusion than her great brother. Yeah, Kettle unquote. did think that she would have made a far better yeah. job of it than Charles Stewart Parnell. Now, should she be in Glasnevin? She should be in Glasnevin. Everyone I've spoken to said, bring her home. And there's a hashtag, bring her home. Margaret, how would you feel about that? Do you think, would you be in favour of repatriating the remains of Anna Parnell? Absolutely. And and thinking about that, I was doing a newspaper search for the time of her death and I found a very interesting letter from a JP Dunn who had been a member of the Children's Land League and he wrote to the Irish Independent saying... Why should alien earth rest on her coffin lid, the green grass of Glasnevin, like the green banners she loves so well should enshroud it? And he called on the patriot ladies of Ireland to see she's rewarded with an Irish grave, saying more than that should have been her due, less than that would be base ingratitude. And I think that that really sums it up. I think that the Irish state owes her a huge debt and it can only really be repaid by having her come to Glasnevin. And after all, her death was not... It wasn't that she was ill and she knew that she was going to die. She died from drowning. It was a shock. She wasn't able to have decided for herself. And she didn't leave a will. She hadn't got a will. She left to her estate. She'd inherited some money before she had died, so she wasn't poverty-stricken at this point time. She'd left over a £1,000 and it was administered by her brother Henry Tudor Parnell. But there was nobody there of the political Parnells who had that connection with Ireland to have supported that. Dunn actually says that he calls for the living relatives of her to do that, to bring her remains back to Irish soil. But they were all very much part of English society. I don't think they were interested. Well, the best of luck with the with Thank the you. campaign and Lucy Keveney. Uh, hopefully that will, will proceed and will be successful. The book Tale of a Great Sham is how Anna Parnell described her own activities. Not well worth reading, but not easy, unfortunately, to get hold of. But you can find out a lot more about her in Margaret Ward's Unmanageable Revolutionaries. Uh, Miles, could I just say that it's been republished by UCD Press um, and and it is available. Excellent. Good for them. Good for them. I was completely unaware of that. But uh, I do remember getting hold of a copy of it a number of years ago and having great difficulty in doing it. Can I just say something else? Lucy, yeah. There were just seven people at her funeral. Right. We okay. need to rectify that. Okay. Well, that's five more than were at the funeral of of, of Captain O'Shea. So that's yep. uh, which was not too <laughs> far away uh, down the coast. But so, so anyway, but still, that's we can we can do better. We could do better. A lot better than seven. So my guests, Margaret Ward and Lucy Keveney, thank you both very much for talking to us about this extraordinary woman's life and legacy.